I'm Elizabeth Slattery, and welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Before we get into what's been going on at the Supreme Court, I'm excited to announce that we are now selling SCOTUS 101 mugs. So show your love for the podcast and get a limited edition mug while they last. I'll tweet a link to the Shop Heritage website from the Twitter account. The site is shop.heritage.org. And listeners, we're offering a 30% off discount code and free shipping. You want to enter four bananas at checkout to get your discount. That's all one word, the number four, and bananas, lowercase. All right, now on to this week's show. This week, my colleague Amy Swear joins me to break down the big Supreme Court decisions from the past few weeks. And later in the episode, I'll share a recent interview with Richard Brookheiser on his biography of the great Chief Justice John Marshall. Amy, thanks for joining me, and welcome to SCOTUS 101. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's good to be the new kid on the block here. So the justices are busy churning out opinions in all of the remaining cases. In the past three weeks, the court has released 11 opinions, and there are 27 cases remaining. And the last scheduled day of the term is Monday, June 24th. So the justices have their work cut out for them over the next few weeks. At this point, the longest outstanding case is Gundy versus United States. It was argued on the second day of the term, all the way back in October, and it's uh, it's a case challenging part of the Sex Offender Registry and Notification Act called SORNA uh, for violating the non-delegation doctrine. Uh, the court hasn't struck down the federal statute under this doctrine since the 1930s, so a lot of con law scholars were very excited when the court took up this case. Uh, and based on the other opinion assignments from the October sitting, it's looking likely that Justice Sotomayor may be writing the opinion in Gundy. But moving on to recent opinions and orders, we're going to hit just a few highlights from the last few weeks. So first up is Herrera versus Wyoming. This is a 5-4 decision written by Justice Sotomayor, and she was joined by Ginsburg, Breyer, Kagan, and Gorsuch. So the majority held that the Crow tribe hunting rights under an 1868 treaty didn't expire when Wyoming became a state in 1890. So this treaty guarantees the tribe the right to hunt on unoccupied land. And the area in question in this case is now part of the Bighorn National Forest. So the court first decided that uh, the creation of this national forest did not make the land categorically occupied. Writing for the majority, Sotomayor stressed that the term unoccupied must be interpreted as the tribe understood it when the treaty was made back in 1868. And that, that meaning at the time was free of residence or settlement by non-Indians. Uh, so in siding with, with the state, the lower court had relied on an earlier Supreme Court decision uh, from 1896 that held that statehood extinguished an identical hunting treaty. But Justice Sotomayor explained that a much later Supreme Court decision in 1999 had repudiated that earlier ruling and that Congress must expressly abrogate treaty rights, which the, the majority said did not happen here. Justice Dan Alito dissented, joined by Chief Justice Roberts and Justices Thomas and Kavanaugh, disagreeing with the majority's assessment that the court had repudiated the 1896 decision uh, and explained that um, Alito explained that he would have held the forest was occupied, which would have prevented the court from relitigating the validity of the treaty. Now, I think it's pretty interesting that, uh, you know, this is, I think, the third um, Indian uh, Indian law case from this term. It's, it's interesting that there have been a number of them and that uh, Justice Gorsuch has sort of uh, oftentimes been joining with the, the more liberal members of the court uh, in 
in another decision earlier this term. Uh, and so we'll we'll be keeping an eye to see what that might mean for the big Indian case um, involving whether, you know, a large portion of the state of Oklahoma is actually a previously unrecognized Indian reservation. But anyway, Amy, do you want to talk about uh, the, the Neves versus Bartlett decision? Sure. So Neves v. Bartlett uh, was a 6-3 decision uh, by Roberts, joined by Breyer, Alito, Kagan, Kavanaugh, and uh, Thomas concurred in part and in the judgment. Uh, so this was a, about a, a Section 1983 claim stemming from an alleged retaliatory arrest. So there's kind of an interesting uh, factual background here. Um, this stems from an interaction between law enforcement and a citizen at Alaska's Arctic Man, which if you're not familiar <laughs> with Arctic Man, um, the, the Guardian once described it as if Burning Man and a monster truck rally had a love child in the mountains of Alaska. Um, so uh, they consider themselves about 12,000 uh, so-called slednecks uh, who get together in the middle of nowhere, and it's a lot of drinking and extreme sports. And uh, there was a, a respondent in this case who was arrested for disorderly conduct and for resisting arrest, and he filed a Section 1983 uh, claiming that he was actually arrested uh, based on his refusal to speak with the officers and for other speech during his interaction with them. And initially, the, the lower courts actually agreed with him and held that the existence of probable cause does not defeat a retaliatory arrest claim because the officer's alleged statement after the arrest could enable the respondent to prove uh, the officer's desire to chill his speech was the but-for cause of the arrest. Uh, the Supreme Court here, um, the 6-3 majority, uh, reversed that, and they held that the claim for an alleged retaliatory arrest failed as a matter of law because there was probable cause for the officers to arrest the respondent uh, for that underlying disorderly conduct and res resisting arrest charge. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, they would have uh, given a narrow exception to that general rule here, uh, where a plaintiff need not show the absence of probable cause when he presents objective evidence that he was arrested when otherwise similarly situated individuals not engaged in the same sort of protected speech were not arrested. Um, so it's kind of interesting here because it would seem that if, if anything falls into that sort of exception, it would be uh, where there are a lot of uh, drunken, disorderly people at Arctic Man um, who are engaging in drunken, disorderly behavior but are also not being arrested. Um, so it's it's unclear. Uh, a lot of people have pointed out how this doesn't apply at Arctic Man um, or, or in this particular situation, uh, but they would hold that there is this, this narrow exception to that general rule. So I thought Justice Gorsuch's, there were several concurrences and dissents in part, and Gorsuch's partial concurrence, partial dissent was pretty interesting. He pointed to the explosion of criminal laws and regulations and how he said almost anyone can be arrested for something. Uh, and so he concluded that if allowing probable cause to basically erase the First Amendment violation, he said little would be left of our First Amendment liberties and little would separate us from the tyrannies of the past. So I thought that was kind of an interesting take uh, on on the decision. Uh, but moving on to another recent opinion, Box versus Planned Parenthood of Indiana and Kentucky. This per curiam opinion, uh, this is, that means it's unsigned, uh, so it's not in any one justice's name. Um, this has gotten a lot of media attention. Uh, this is reversing a Seventh Circuit uh, ruling and upholding Indiana's law that requires abortion providers to bury or cremate fetal remains. So the court declined to review another part of the law that bars selective abortions based, based on sex, race, or disability. Justice Thomas wrote an impassioned concurrence 
uh, discussing the abortion industry's roots in the eugenics movement and how he says this case highlights the fact that abortion is an act rife with the potential for eugenic manipulation. So he went on to describe how in many countries, unborn babies diagnosed with Down syndrome have a near 100% termination rate. Uh, Also that in Asia, there is an entire lost, uh, a generation of so-called lost women because of the high rate of abortion of um, unborn baby girls. And sadly, even in the United States, the abortion rate, uh, he pointed to the abortion rate of unborn black babies saying how high it is. And in fact, in parts of New York City, black babies are more likely to be aborted than born alive. So very, very sad uh, statistics that he points to. But Justice Thomas agreed that the court should allow lower courts to consider other cases like this before the justices take up this issue, um, because this was the first appeals court to rule on such a such a law, and there are other states with similar laws. So in time, they, they may take up a case like this. But he concluded that since the Supreme Court had invented the constitutional right to abortion, it is, quote, duty-bound to address the scope of that right in the future. So next up, Amy, do you want to talk about um, the uh, Mont versus United States, which, which was a pretty interesting lineup of the justices in the majority and the dissent? Right. Absolutely. So Mont v. United States was a 5-4 opinion by Thomas, joined by Roberts, Ginsburg, Alito, and Kavanaugh. You you did hear that right. Uh, The question (laughs) in this case uh, was whether pretrial detention tolls or stays a term of federal supervised release uh, if a court decides to credit that period of pretrial detention toward a sentence uh, for a new conviction. Um, So this is under Section 3624E, which says that a term of supervised release does not run during any period in which the person is imprisoned in connection with a conviction for state, federal, or local crime, unless the imprisonment is for a period of less than 30 days. So the Supreme Court, uh, the the majority here, uh, held that pretrial detention later credited as time served for a new conviction does indeed pause supervised release from a previous conviction, uh, considering it is a Thomas opinion, unsurprisingly, uh, their their main three points focus on uh, textual points about the definition of imprisoned, a lot of dictionary use, uh, in which uh, the, the majority goes on to say uh, this term in prison can encompass pretrial detention. Uh, and they also looked at the meaning of the phrase in connection with uh, and said that uh, that, again, was broad enough to encompass this situation. The dissent here was uh, authored by Sotomayor and joined by Breyer, Kagan and Gorsuch. They would argue that the majority misread statutory terms such as unnatural isolation uh, and would would have held themselves that the detention before any conviction occurred can't constitute imprisonment in connection with a conviction. Um, That is, this is a separate thing that you can't count as being in connection with a conviction um, because no one has been convicted. This is pretrial detention. Uh, They would also have pointed out that the purpose of pretrial confinement is not punishment for a crime because, again, there's there's been no conviction. um, But the purpose is to ensure that defendants appear in court uh, or incapacitated if there's a danger to the community. Uh, And and they emphasize the serious risk of unfairness, uh, namely that every person on supervised release has to comply with the conditions of supervised release while they're in pretrial custody. Um, But under this holding, only some people would get credit for this compliance. Um, So a little bit of back and forth there with a pretty mixed lineup of of joiners of opinions. Yeah, I think the, you know, the the interesting thing about this, this case and also the uh, 
the Wyoming, um, you know, tri- tribal case we talked about is they're both five four decisions, but they they highlight the fact that the justices don't vote in you know in blocks that never change. So it's not always the so-called liberals against the so-called conservatives. You know, here we had um, you know the notorious RBG joining a Thomas opinion with Kavanaugh, Alito, and the Chief Justice. Uh, you know, so it's, I think it just highlights the fact that. You know, we hear a lot about five four decisions, which are itself a small portion of of the cases that that the court you know ends up deciding. I think it's something like you know twenty to twenty five percent end up being five four, uh, but they're not always uh, you know a clash of conservative versus liberal. Um, but anyway, moving on to the orders list from the last couple of weeks, the court has granted several cases that will be heard next term. The most Noteworthy one, uh, in, in my opinion, is Allen versus Cooper. Uh, copyright, sovereign immunity, and Blackbeard sunken ship. This case has a little something for everyone. So the issue is whether Congress validly abrogated state sovereign immunity when it passed the Copyright Remedy Clarification Act, which provides remedies for authors of original expression whose federal copyrights are infringed by states. So the case stems from the discovery of the infamous pirate Blackbeard's ship, the Queen, Queen Anne's Revenge, uh, which was found off the coast of North Carolina. So a videographer named Frederick Allen documented the salvage operation of the uh, Queen Anne's Revenge and registered copyrights for these videos and photos. Uh, but then in 2015, he and his production company filed a lawsuit claiming that the state of North Carolina had violated their copyrights by publishing images. Uh, the state countered that it could not be sued in federal court, and the Fourth Circuit Appeals Court agreed, finding that the Copyright Remedy Clarification Act had not validly repealed the immunity granted to the state by the 11th Amendment. So now the Supreme Court has agreed to review whether, as uh, Frederick Allen puts it, creators of original expression will be left without remedy when states trample their federal copyrights. Uh, so I think that'll be uh, an interesting one to watch um, for, you know, if for nothing else, uh, because it's not so often you have a case involving a, a pirate ship at the Supreme Court. Uh, I wanted to flag a couple of denials um, that, that the court announced in the last few weeks. Uh, they are not going to hear Doe versus Boyertown Area School District, which is a challenge to a school's locker room um, and bathroom policy for transgender students. Uh, it seems that for the time being, the court is not interested in getting into that issue. Uh, the court also declined to hear LB versus Woodward, which is a Fourth Amendment challenge to a warrantless strip search of a child by a caseworker at school who suspected physical abuse. And finally, um, the court denied American Freedom Defense Initiative versus Washington Metropolitan Area Transit Authority, or WMATA, as we call it in the, in the D.C. area. This is the First Amendment challenge to uh, the Transit Authority's refusal to run support free speech ads on uh, subways and buses. But next up, I sat down with Richard Burkheiser to talk about his book about the great Chief Justice John Marshall. Richard Burkheiser is a senior editor of National Review. He's written biographies of James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, George Washington, and now Chief Justice John Marshall. Welcome to SCOTUS 101, Richard. Thanks for having me. So in your latest book, John Marshall, The Man Who Made the Supreme Court, You describe how Marshall took the institution from being one that lacked energy, weight, and dignity, as the first Chief Justice John Jay put it, to truly being a co-equal branch of the federal government. 
I love the way you characterize Marshall's impact. You write, when they decided, the nation listened. Marshall made them not six or seven men, but one body. So tell me, what drew you to want to write about Chief Justice Marshall? Well, the immediate provocation was my old friend, Akhil Amar, professor at Yale Law School, and he said to me, Rick, I know what your next book should be. It should be about John Marshall. So uh, I, I, I took his advice. I took his advice. I took his advice largely because I thought there was a gap there. Mm-hmm. There have been books on Marshall and a number of excellent ones, but fewer than you would think, given his importance. And I think that's because he made his mark in the law, and that frightens off both authors and publishers who think it's too technical, or it may be too technical. And certainly a lot of it is too technical for me. I never went to law school, but I think that was also an advantage for me in writing this book because I had to approach things fresh. And if I had to work to understand something, maybe I was in a good position to explain it to readers. So you also write about how Marshall brought order to the chaos of the legal landscape in our nation's early years. Tell me about how he did that. I think the main thing he did was to establish the supremacy of the federal judiciary over state judiciaries. This was the most controversial aspect of his decisions and the one that that his critics most often attacked. And there were a series of of such decisions, Uh, Dartmouth v. Woodward, McCullough v. Maryland, Cones v. Virginia, Osborne v. Bank of the United States. And uh, each of these decisions had some other important aspect to it often, but woven into all of them was the notion that uh, state courts could not have the final say that there was appeal possible to federal courts. Marshall was really following in the footsteps of Alexander Hamilton, who'd written in the Federalist Papers that to have 13 courts of final appeal, there there were only 13 states Mm -hmm. when Hamilton was writing, would be a hydra in government. (laughs) And, of course, you know the hydra was a monster with many heads, and if you tried to cut a head off, two would sprout in its place, and, and Hercules only slays it by branding the stumps as he cuts the heads off so the new heads can't sprout out. And Marshall, I think, did the same in a much less bloody fashion. (laughs) So you write about how the Marshall Court placed a premium on deciding cases unanimously. Today, we hear a lot about 5-4 decisions of the Supreme Court, although those account for roughly a quarter of the decisions in any given term. Do you think that this trend towards unanimity helped with the public perception of the court and its rulings in its early years? Oh, definitely. And certainly Marshall was trying to bring that about. Uh, We don't have any paper trail on it. We don't have anyone saying, well, we got together this morning and he told us we should all (laughs) write a unanimous decision. But it's clear from the results. It's clear from the high percentage of unanimous decisions. It's clear from a comment that one of his fellow justices, uh, William Johnson, who was a Jefferson appointee and who agreed with Marshall as often as anybody else, but had a 
some prickliness in his personality, and he has a, a late correspondence with Thomas Jefferson where he explains the social pressure within the Marshall Court. And he said when he first got on, on the Supreme Court bench, he thought, well, I'll just write my own opinion on every case I decide. And then my fellow justices told me that judges should not be cutting at each other. That would lower all of our prestige. <laughs> and the words he used to Jefferson were, so I bent to the current. So according to him, there was a current. There was an actual uh, pressure in the court or a disposition in the court that everybody ought to agree whenever possible. And there are also a couple of Marshall decisions where he uh, he implies that, even though he's writing the opinion of the court, he maybe didn't fully agree with it at first, but now he's satisfied or he's been persuaded enough that he can go along with his brother justices. So those are the signs of, of the kind of uh, dynamic that went on. And I, I think the other side of it, it wasn't always Marshall imposing his view on his colleagues. Mm -hmm. Sometimes he bowed to them. He did practice deference. Uh, he would let opinions of the court be written sometimes by colleagues who were more expert in the particular field of law than he was. And I think he, there were also cases where uh, he uh, placed an issue before his fellow justices, and, and even though he was on the other side of it initially, when more of them came down against him, he went along with them. So he practiced deference, and he received it in return. So Marshall had a contentious relationship with his cousin, Thomas Jefferson. They had a number of clashes over the years, uh, famously in Marbury versus Madison, over the impeachment of Justice Samuel Chase in Aaron Burr's uh, trial for treason, just to name a few. Tell me a little bit about their relationship. Well, contentious doesn't describe it. They hated each other. <laughs> uh, they were second cousins once removed, but that didn't um, do anything for the relationship. Marshall thought that Jefferson was a demagogue, that he talked a great game about the people's will, but that he was always seeking to manipulate it. Uh, particularly via the House of Representatives. Uh, he also thought he'd been a bad Secretary of State for George Washington, you know, carrying out his policies with one hand, but then undermining them with the other. Jefferson thought Marshall was a sophist, that he would twist anything to a predetermined legal conclusion. Uh, Jefferson warned Joseph Story before he got on the court that you must never give a direct answer to any question that Marshall asks you. If he asked me if the sun were shining, I would say, I don't know, sir. I cannot tell. And uh, Jefferson's fear was that if Jefferson said, yes, it is, or no, it isn't, Marshall would somehow get Marbury versus Madison out of that. Um, so there was a real deep-rooted animosity that never led up to any degree. So today we demand the Supreme Court justices be strictly apolitical, but this wasn't the case in Marshall's day. Would you talk a bit about his commitment to the Federalist cause, uh, which Thomas Jefferson quipped had retired into the judiciary as a stronghold? Right. Well, Marshall was the last Federalist left standing. 
Uh, the Federalists lose their grip on the federal government in the election of 1800 when John Adams loses his rematch to Thomas Jefferson, and both houses of Congress flip uh, from the Federalist Party to Jefferson's first Republican Party. And the Federalists never come back from that. Uh, there's some, there some elections where they do better than others, but they, they never get majorities in either House of Congress again, and, and they never get the White House again. And the party disappears after the War of 1812 because too many Federalists were simply secessionists and wannabe traitors. I mean, it was as bad as that. But Marshall uh, lives until 1835, sits on the Supreme Court until then. So here he is all by himself. And he never changes his convictions. Uh, he thought the views of the Constitution that George Washington and Alexander Hamilton had were the correct views. He shared their views, and he reflected those views in the decisions that he issued. Now, let's see. As far as daily partisan politics goes, Marshall did try to pull the Supreme Court back from the crossfire. And to do this, he sometimes had to persuade fellow justices, uh, especially early on. There were some of his colleagues, Samuel Chase being the most conspicuous one, who were Federalist fire eaters. Uh, they were willing to give it right back to Jefferson, and Marshall uh, had to rein them in sometimes. Uh, a first instance of this is when the new Republican Congress cancels the Supreme Court's summer session. It, it, it passes a law saying the Supreme Court will no longer meet twice a year. It had met in uh, January or February and then again in August. So now the new rule is, well, they only get one session a year at the beginning of the year. And they did this uh, partly because they did not want the Supreme Court to rule on the constitutionality of that very law that they had just <laughs> passed. And there was a summer session coming up. They would have been able to jump on it right away. Mm -hmm. And they didn't want the court to have that option. So Samuel Chase writes to Marshall and says, well, we should all get together anyway informally and you know, issue some protest about this. And that was sort of Marshall's inclination. He, he thought he, he deeply disliked the new judiciary law that the Republican Congress had passed, but he polled his fellow justices. He found that most of them were for letting it slide. And so that's what the Marshall Court did. So that shows both his deference and, and his instincts that you don't always stick your neck out. You know, you only stick your neck out when it's really vital, when it's really necessary. Otherwise, um, hang back. So let's talk about one of his greatest allies on the court. Uh, tell me about Chief Justice Marshall's relationship with Justice Joseph Story. It was almost father-son. There was a 24-year difference in their ages. Uh, Marshall had a number of sons of his own, and... He provided for all of them, but none of them was as smart as their father. A story was. So I think there was that attraction in the relationship for Marshall. And certainly, story adored Marshall in turn. 
Uh, he appreciated his mind. He loved his temperament. He wrote, I love his laugh, which is a, an interesting thing for a, a judge to write about another judge. <laughs> uh, and th their minds were somewhat different. Story had a quicker mind, a more active mind. He wrote constantly. Uh, he, he wrote judicial decisions. He wrote occasional pieces, speeches, essays uh, that got published. He wrote a multi-volume set of commentaries on the law of the United States where he surveyed the whole landscape. You know, he was the Energizer Bunny. He never quit. And <laughs> Marshall was a little slower to get going. He, he writes a multi-volume biography of his great hero, George Washington, and once he engages in a journalistic controversy about um, about one of his decisions. But that's really it. And someone compared Marshall to a great bird taking flight. Uh, the person said that the bird flaps and flounders around for a while, but then once it gets off the ground, its wing beats are very strong, and it goes directly where it wants to go. And that that's what Marshall was like. It took him a while to get going. Uh, Story was always... Um, you know, zero to 160 seconds. So uh, so there was enough difference in the two men that I think added to the attraction. They complemented each other. So a recurring question you pose in the book is whether Marshall's view that the judiciary is the sole arbiter of constitutional questions, whether this is right. You put it another way at one point. You said, do judicial guardians decay into unelected legislators? So after having studied Chief Justice Marshall, what do you think? Has the, has the court strayed too far from Marshall's vision? Well, in, in the first place, I don't think Marshall necessarily thought that the court was the sole final word. Uh, he would say, we have the final word when a case comes before us. But he was also very careful to say, we only deal with cases. And there were opportunities that the Marshall Court had, or that the Supreme Court early in its life, even before Marshall got on it, had to um, comment on other aspects of the government. And it always declined those. So, and I think, I think Marshall would have agreed with that. Now, has the court strayed from the way that he ruled? Well, I think that's pretty clear. It seemed to me that the two principles that always guided Marshall were either an originalism of words or an originalism of intentions. The originalism of words is we have the words of the Constitution. They are understandable. They are plain. They're not hermetic. There's no hidden meaning here. Uh, the framers meant to be understood. We can understand them, and we are obliged to follow what they have written, or any amendments that uh, are added to the Constitution, same goes for them. The originalism of intentions is Marshall thinking, what, what was in their minds when they wrote this? What were they trying to accomplish? What were they worried about? What did they fear? And so sometimes he looks to that to guide him in a decision. 
And there's one case, at least one case, Dartmouth v. Woodward, where he suggests that there can be a little gap between those two methods. Uh, that case involved the charter of Dartmouth College, which had been a colonial charter granted by George III. And uh, the state of New Hampshire had changed the composition of the college, and the, the old regime in the college said, no, you can't do this. We, we have a charter that controls how we operate. And Marshall, in the, in the course of upholding the Dartmouth Charter, he does it on the grounds that it's a contract, and therefore it falls under the contract clause, Article One, Section 10. And he does say, did the framers of that clause have colonial college charters in mind when they wrote it? And he admits probably not. But he says if a case falls under the words of the rule, then the rule must apply to it. So there he's suggesting, well, maybe the framers weren't thinking of this when they wrote this provision of the Constitution, but the words control it now, so that's what we have to be guided by. So there's a suggestion, you know, that there may be a little crack in there, but certainly in most of his, most of his rulings, these two methods uh, move in tandem. And... There are judges who still rule that way today, but there are also many judges who don't. So we have moved away from Marshall's model. Mm -hmm. Well, one final question. If you could have a conversation with Chief Justice Marshall, what would you want to talk about? I personally would love to hear about the camaraderie that Marshall fostered on the court. You know, when the justices would debate cases over dinner uh, or you mention in the book one of the justices was ill and couldn't come to the court, so the rest of the justices came to him uh, to get their work done. So I'd love to hear what what you'd like to talk with Chief Justice Marshall about. Yeah, the justices, uh, when McCullough v. Maryland was read, they all went to Stella's Hotel, which was on Capitol Hill, because Justice Chase was staying there, and he had a case of gout, so he couldn't, uh, <laughs> he couldn't move. So they came to him, which was very sweet. <laughs> I would want to ask Chief Justice Marshall about George Washington. You know, just tell me about him. Where mm -hmm. did you first see him? When did you first talk to him? What did you feel like at that moment? I'd want him to explore that topic because he adored Washington. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he could write about him very movingly. And I'd like to hear what he had to say. Yeah, Washington obviously had a, a very large uh, impact on Chief Justice Marshall's life and his career. The largest. Yes. Well, Richard, thank you so much for joining me. And I will be sure to, to share in our, in our show notes uh, a link so our listeners can purchase this wonderful book, John Marshall, The Man Who Made the Supreme Court. Thank you. We'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia, John Marshall edition. I'm going to try to stump my co-host, Amy. Are you ready? Uh, I'm as ready as I will ever be for this. All right. Well, hopefully these will be educational for, for our listeners. Okay. So first question. Which iconic American symbol is said to have cracked during John Marshall's funeral? See, I don't know the answer, but uh, if it's not the Liberty Bell, then I, I, I genuinely don't know what it is. So I'm going to go with the Liberty Bell. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's All right. This is a bit of Founding Fathers lore. We know for certain that the bell was damaged by 1846, 
when, according to official city records, the mayor of Philadelphia asked for the bell to be rung on George Washington's birthday, and it, 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 they had to repair it, and then it cracked beyond repair when they rang it. Uh, and, and Chief Justice Marshall died in 1835. So we don't know. Maybe the crack started, uh, but it's a, it's a bit of family father's lore. Okay, next question. Marshall was the longest-serving Chief Justice uh, clocking in at 34 years, 5 months, and 11 days. Who beat him out as the longest-serving justice? Beat him out as the longest-serving justice. Yeah. Oh, so no man. other chief justices have served as long, but uh, there is an associate justice who serves longer. Uh, this is hard. Um, okay, so I've got to, like, rack my brain now for... I honestly don't From know. The, I, I know. The I know. Twentieth century. Uh, I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. I know. I know. Justice Stevens was up there for a while. Uh, I don't know. Justice Stevens is not not a bad guess. Uh, uh, I, I don't know. I it's. I know it's wrong, but I, I'd go with Stevens. <laughs> not a bad guess. I forget um, what what he clocked in at, but he he's up there for uh, in the running. But it's Wild Bill William O. Douglas. He served okay. 36 years and 211 days, and he weathered several personal scandals and impeachment attempts. All right, third question. Chief Justice Marshall once wrote that the power to tax involves the power to destroy. Can you name the famous decision that this language appeared in? Oh, man. And it's not murdery. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, I, I can't even, I can't even drop a name. This is embarrassing. Uh, I, I don't even have an educated guess. <laughs> it's McCulloch versus Maryland. Oh my goodness. Maryland. See, yeah. now, now that you yeah. say it, I know it. Let's yeah. do that again. Can, can we retape that one? Retape that one. And I got it. <laughs> we don't edit trivia. <laughs> so in this case, the state of Maryland tried to impose taxes on the second bank of the United States. And the court held that those states retain the power to tax. The Constitution and laws made in pursuance thereof are supreme and cannot be controlled by the state. Okay, fourth question. Um, this one might be a little hard, but we'll see. In what regiment did Chief Justice Marshall serve during the American Revolution? Oh, this is where I just start throwing out states and numbers. Um, if you can get the, the state, that's good enough for me. <laughs> I, is it helpful I, to know that he was a cousin of Thomas Jefferson? I want to say it's Pennsylvania. I, I really want to say it's Pennsylvania. It, it is not. Okay. He, he served in the Culpeper Minutemen. Oh, my goodness. Um, my, my second guess which, was going to be Virginia. <laughs> which later became part of yeah. the Continental Army's 11th Regiment of Virginia. And at Valley Forge, uh, George Washington appointed Marshall to be the chief legal officer. Okay, fifth and final question. Okay. For roughly the first 100 years, Supreme Court justices had to ride circuit to hear cases in the appeals court. So while riding circuit, Marshall once forgot to pack this essential item. This essential item. Um, okay, I, I'm going to go with shoes. He forgot to pack his shoes. <laughs> really close. So he, he forgot to pack an extra pair of pants. <laughs> so when he was traveling 
his pants ripped, and the local tailors were apparently too busy to help him. So he sat in judgment with bare legs uh, covered by his judicial robe. That is fantastic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good on him. Anyway. Good on him. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think you did a pretty good job, and I really appreciate you joining me this week. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcast, and please leave us a five-star rating. Please follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101. You can email us at SCOTUS 101 at org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. And don't forget to check out our new SOTUS 101 mug at shop.heritage.org. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery. Sound design by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit heritage.org.